Chapter 10 There were mirrors on all four walls. He checked for blemishes in his appearance. The most obvious one was the gentle slope his belly made under a green woolen jumper. An expensive overcoat he'd purchased against the cold that afternoon was slung over his arm. He used it to mask the protrusion. Under the jumper was a white shirt that would have gone well with any work suit. The jeans had been bought years ago, but had never been worn. They were stiff and tight. It occurred to him that he should go back to his room and put his suit on. But he'd already pressed the button for the lobby, and the lift was rumbling downwards. He smiled and dropped the smile, then mentally compared the faces he'd made in one of the mirrors. Nothing could be read into his neutral face. The face at rest was impartial. It was a lawyerly regard, which had taken Otto years to perfect. His smile, on the other hand, was lit up with meaning. Marie had expressed her disapproval. He was inclined to agree. He'd arrived at the Spitzenhof in high spirits earlier, surpassing himself, only to be pinched into a new kind of darkness, played out like an opera. The abomination with the priest was something Otto was still too afraid to think about. He'd almost succeeded in forgetting his future as well. Scrubbing out what was to come was how he'd been used to dealing with the mental anguish that came with knowing it. A practiced ability to eviscerate events that didn't fit in is what had made it possible for Otto to have any kind of meaningful conversation with Marie in the Spitzenhof, even after the bewildering encounter with Promontano. It had taken most of the rest of the afternoon for him to look back on what had happened as an intrusive fantasy that had somehow become embroiled with his experiences so that it only gave the impression of having happened. What he was trying to remember but couldn't was why the priest should have wanted to present him with an existential dilemma. He'd refused to indulge any of it, of course. He hadn't taken the book called Otto in Flames by Anton Matins. Nor did he care for the money that was being rubbed into his nose. Yet Otto had ended up with the money, which is apparently what the book had said would happen. Each time he thought about this, he frightened himself. Despite being in receipt of an envelope stuffed with freshly printed cash, Otto couldn't formulate any plausible memory of how he'd come by it. Before the lift doors opened, he tried smiling one last time. There was really no reason to smile. It was just that when he did, even arbitrarily, he noticed a slight improvement in his mood. The lift came to a halt, but the doors didn't open. He waited, but they wouldn't open. Although he was still smiling, he was momentarily consumed by a new fear. He saw himself having to prise the doors apart with his fingers. In his mind, Otto was already having to find his way through a warren of poorly lit passages with no idea which one might lead to safety. He would have to walk aimlessly, he imagined maybe for the rest of his life. Once he'd pressed the alarm, it was less than a minute before a member of staff opened the doors from the outside. She apologized for the inconvenience. She assured Otto she would call the engineers straight away. He stooped to pick up his overcoat. It must have fallen while he was pretending not to panic. Running his hand through his thinning hair, he thanked the member of staff and smiled again, pointedly aware of how uncharacteristic it was for him to smile at anyone. The member of staff smiled back. Despite this successful interaction, though, there was no measurable uplift in his mood. It was disappointing, but overshadowed by an even greater disappointment. He'd hardly stepped out of the lift when he noticed that Marie wasn't in the lobby. Apart from a man with a lanky physique, there was nobody in the lobby. The man was sitting on a sofa, his legs crossed. He was hunched over his phone, which he held cupped in both hands. Otto walked over to the revolving door and looked into the street. It wasn't snowing anymore, but it was dark. 
Thinking that if he stood under a streetlight, Marie might be able to spot him more easily, he slipped his overcoat on and stepped outside. He checked his wristwatch. It was a quarter to eight. A horse and carriage clattered by. There was nobody in the back of the carriage. The driver had a puffy face, a bowler hat, and a red liveried coat. She was smoking a panatella, sitting slightly to one side, holding the reins slack. She'd covered her legs with a rug. For a second or two, Otto was absorbed by the horse. It was white with gray patches. It seemed nervous and energetic as it pulled the fiacre across his line of vision. The condensation produced through the horse's nostrils billowed in the streetlight. Although it was near freezing, there were plenty of professionals milling about, striding forth, waving their arms excitedly, piling in and out of taxis. Otto scanned the faces of each one that whizzed by. When, after a few minutes of this, Marie's face hadn't materialized, he took out his phone to make doubly sure he'd received her text. The message flashed up, just as he'd known it would, confirming her arrival at the hotel fifteen minutes before. He was starting to edge his way back to the revolving doors when the long-legged man who'd been sitting in the lobby stepped into the street as well. He was taller than Otto. He was stretching on a pair of gloves and had a white silk scarf tucked around his neck. Seeing his face close up made Otto reassess the man's age. There were pimples on his cheeks and forehead. He strolled into Otto's path, smiling enough for Otto to notice that his lower teeth were crooked. The expression he wore seemed unsure, if not childish. His face was angular in the extreme. It was a composite of cheekbones and jawlines and sunken eyes. Otto thought his haircut strange. Cropped short at the sides but long over the front, it swept across his pimply forehead more like a statement than a haircut. Are you ready for the apocalypse? The person said. His voice was soft. He spoke in German, using the formal mode of address. His smile was polite. There seemed no reason for Otto not to smile back. He felt reassured by the brief upsurge in his mood and attributed this to his forthcoming meeting with Marie. Looking over the young person's shoulder, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. The young person furrowed his brow. He said, you should be. Perhaps some other time, Otto said, turning away. He put a few paces between them, thinking that that would be the end of it. In a moment, it would be as if their encounter had never happened. It would become a non-event, like seeing a horse-drawn carriage go by and forgetting that, too. But the young person followed. Keeping up his side of the conversation, he said, Nowadays, apocalypse means a kind of disaster, more like a cataclysm. But in the olden days, it used to mean inspiration or revelation, which is much better, don't you think? Otto quickened his pace. He took out his mobile to text Marie. Thank you, he said over his shoulder, but I really haven't got time. She won't speak to you, the young person called out. Not until you've spoken to me first. The assured bluntness caused Otto to reevaluate his position. He turned to face the person who had by now become a quirky teenager and who could only have been his son, but he had to ask anyway. You're not Jacob, are you? Drawing himself up to his full height, smiling awkwardly again, the young person took a few steps forward. He removed both gloves, as if he might have been about to slap Otto across the face with them, but at the last moment thrust his right hand forward for Otto to shake. It's a pleasure meeting you, he said. The hand was bony and clammy and every bit as articulate as its owner was. They shook twice before Otto let go. He'd been lulled into the handshake and realized only as he withdrew from it the potential for ridicule in the gesture. Did your mother send you? he asked. If there was a degree of infuriation in his voice, it was because he felt tricked. It's a perfect night for revelations, Jacob replied, with what seemed like an air of buffoonery. 
Perhaps we should take a turn, he said. As if to delineate a path for them, he swept his re-gloved hands along a row of ornate streetlights intended to recall the gas lamps of Vienna's yesteryear. I find the cold air invigorating, he said, wrinkling his lips to suppress a smile that was ready to enjoy itself. Otto followed in a quandary made on many levels. The most confusing part of it was the disturbing reminder that the future, as it had been revealed to him, was so open to misinterpretation. He was sure that before midnight that night, Marie would be with him in his hotel room. This was a fact. He'd known it for two decades, which is why he'd always assumed that the text message, I'm in the lobby, would be from her, not from one of his children. Now he was having to wonder what else he'd misinterpreted. I assume we're meeting your mother, he kept saying. They'd been strolling for a time, talking about the weather, making innocuous comments. Jacob often had his phone out and was texting even while he talked. Each time Otto asked about Marie, he was clumsily deflected or simply ignored. By Otto's reckoning, his son can't have been more than 17, yet he continued to use the formal mode of address, even grandly, playing the sophisticate. He had a habit of identifying places of historical interest, using them as springboards for conversation. He seemed especially keen on Baroque facades. While he aired anecdotes about grandiose people, the innovative and far-sighted imperialists of the 19th century, it was the buildings they left behind that seemed to capture Jacob's imagination. How apt, he said, that ancient Greece has prevailed in the first district. Greece, Otto said absently. Indirectly, of course, Jacob corrected himself, but the Romans copied the Greeks because the Greeks had mastered the idiom of magnificence. Magnificence? The colonnades, the statues of gods, those vast stepped approaches to temples, it was all devised in the mythological mind of the superior Greek as the architecture of power. Power? Otto's quandary was only heightened by the role Jacob seemed to be playing. The role didn't suit him. There was a clownish, almost camp element to the boy's eloquence. On the other hand, his manner couldn't be considered rude or even unpleasant. A father might delight in the fact that his son was so articulate. In this sense, Jacob was like his sister. When Izzy had visited him in England two years before, Otto had managed to strike up a relationship with her. More than just being able to converse freely with his daughter, he'd come to regard her as gifted and unconventional. What he couldn't understand was why she'd fallen out with her brother. Although he knew that a falling out must have taken place, because it was prophesied, the reasons had never been revealed to him. Thinking of the softly spoken esthete by his side, it was difficult to imagine how such a rift could have come about between the siblings. When Jacob led the way into the open reaches in front of the Hofburg, the part of the past that surfaced in their conversation was the annexation of Austria in 1938. Sweeping his hair back up his forehead, Jacob told Otto that this was the Heldenplatz. He said it was the location Hitler had used to formally announce his return to Vienna. What does that have to do with anything? Otto asked. For the first time since they'd shaken hands, Jacob turned to look more carefully at his father. His lips were smiling, but his eyes seemed wrinkled and distorted. What I mean is, he said, Hitler came back to this place as a savior. From a podium over there, he made promises to the Austrian people. But as we know, he didn't stay for long, and all the promises he made were hollow. The density of Jacob's words confused Otto. He had to shut his mouth because it was hanging open. It seemed that Jacob was attempting to construct a metaphor. Jacob must have been pleased with himself. His smile was increasingly misshapen by his efforts to suppress it. To smother the delight he felt, he rubbed his hand over his mouth. When this didn't work, he looked away and walked on. But Otto stayed where he was. 
and as soon as Jacob realized that his father wasn't following, he remonstrated. Please don't be upset, he said. We all want the same thing. What is it that we all want? Otto asked. To have back what was taken from us, Jacob said. With a renewed effort to make his features more severe, he added, Doesn't all of this magnificent architecture remind us that we want things to be as they used to be? Otto relaxed a little. Prepared to give his son the benefit of the doubt, he said, I know we're going through a difficult time. We all are. That's why I've come back. To help in any way I can. Of course it is, Jacob agreed. He even rolled his eyes. He seemed very relieved. And it's only right, isn't it, that you and I should get to know one another. Before you meet my mother, I mean. She told me so herself. So we are going to see her, Otto said. Jacob did that thing with his lips again. It was as if he was chewing dirt. Despite himself, a smile managed to push itself through. We just thought it would be nice, he said, if you and I had a man-to-man. While Jacob was texting, Otto checked his wristwatch. They'd been walking for nearly two hours. He was keen to know what had become of his family, and this was a step in that direction. He relied on the fact that by midnight he would be back in his hotel room and Marie would be with him. As there was time enough to be led by Jacob, he put his hand on his son's shoulder, which caused Jacob to flinch. Oh, I'm so sorry, Otto said, removing his hand. No, please. Jacob was bright-eyed again. It's fine. Can I ask you not to address me formally? I don't mean to be impolite, Jacob said. You're superbly well-mannered, and you've been very kind. It's just that I find your use of Z distracting. So be it, Jacob said. With a fling of his wrist, he waved the way on. They strolled for a while, then stopped for a coffee. The conversation during this next phase was uncontroversial. Otto wondered what kind of books Jacob read. He was told that nobody read books anymore. People could find out all they needed to know on the internet. Otto wondered about Jacob's school friends. But Jacob wasn't interested in friends, he said. Even as he said this, he was busy texting someone. While Otto paid the bill, he couldn't help thinking of his son as more guarded than reserved. They walked on for a while. Jacob noted that if he had any kind of pastime, it was history, which he read about avidly on the internet. As they went further south, the architecture lost its imperial flavor, and the conversation took a different turn as well. Jacob had led them into a latticework of sloped streets, where the buildings were squat and bare-faced, with arched doorways and double doors. Many of the doors had graffiti on them. They'd been walking for over two hours. As the streets grew quieter, Jacob felt emboldened enough to return to the subject of what he thought life should be like. His delivery was unfailingly pleasant and respectful. What we need, he said, is to return to a time when we all felt whole. Wouldn't you agree? I suppose so, Otto said. You mean that we want the happiness back that our love once gave us? Yes, said Jacob, in a manner of speaking. Although it was cold, Otto felt flushed by the feeling of having made a connection with his son. While there can be no objection to you being here, Jacob continued, because despite your departure, you have always retained the rights of an Austrian, it is those who are not citizens of this country, but feel that they have a right to sustain themselves here, that need to be realigned. As briefly expressed as this sentiment was, it was sufficient to dispel any illusion Otto had that his son was a sensitive soul who wouldn't harm a fly. It stopped him in his tracks. What are you talking about? he asked. I hope I haven't caused offense. Otto found that his mouth was hanging open again. He didn't close it this time. An appalling idea had occurred to him. 
It was the idea that Bartek Novak might have spent all these years radicalizing his son. The force of it made him gape, as if in the space of that minute, Jacob had turned from a child into a right-wing fundamentalist. Don't be like that, the young man said. He was cringing and clenching his fists. I only meant to express a view that is already well established. The realignment of the identity of others requires patience as well as a detailed knowledge of the past. The what? I see you're distressed, Jacob said. I've put my foot in it, haven't I? This is difficult for me too. Perhaps you should think of what I mean as a plea for the way we need to conduct our relationships. You do see, don't you? No. I'm trying to get to know you and to share with you what I find to be important. What do you mean by realignment? It's a manner of speaking. The realignment of the identity of others, Otto repeated. You've come a long way, Jacob replied. People who come from faraway places need to adjust to the rhythms of life as they are here. That's all I mean. Do you see now? Otto's nod was tentative. It was, nevertheless, a nod. That he had to adjust to the rhythms of life in Vienna was something he could readily understand. Jacob elaborated for him. Because these kinds of adjustments need to be permanent, he said, they take time to achieve. Unable to dismiss his suspicions entirely, Otto walked more slowly. But he did walk. In my view, Jacob was saying over his shoulder, technology is the answer. The answer to what? Otto asked. Vienna has always been a frontier, Jacob said, as they turned into another empty street. For the Romans, it was a frontier against the tribes of the north. Then it became a frontier against Islam. Hang on a minute, Otto said, quickening his pace to keep up with his son. When you were living here, Jacob said in his deferential way, it was a frontier against the communists. You really need to say what you're talking about, Otto said. They'd stopped outside a double door. Like all of the others in the street, it had mostly unintelligible graffiti scrawled over it. But this one had a swastika too, roughly scratched into the paint. A small blue plaque above the door displayed the number 182. As he considered a better way to explain what he meant, Jacob casually pushed at the door. When it swung open, he brightened and said, Frontiers are places where people come together. Does that make sense? Concerned and making a mental note to continue this conversation at a more opportune moment, Otto stepped through the open doorway. The door clicked shut behind him. When he looked back, Jacob wasn't there. He didn't attribute anything sinister to this. He knocked on the door. He tried the catch. It was locked. Jacob, he called. Are you there? He was in a courtyard overgrown with shrubs. It was lit by a single lamp. The lamp was mounted over one of several stairwells into the building. It flicked on and off as if it might soon go out and stay out. Dozens of bicycles were stacked along the walls. Some of them had fallen over. Most of the windows looking onto the courtyard were dark. Otto thought he could hear an aria coming from one of the top floor apartments. There was a partial moon obscured by clouds. A few snowflakes had begun to fall. A cat lurched by. It hid in the shrubs. Knocking harder on the double door, Otto called again for his son. Jacob, can you hear me? Something moved in one of the unlit stairwells. He'd seen the movement out of the corner of his eye. He couldn't be sure there was anything to worry about. Not until he looked around and saw the outline of a man and heard the dog by the man's side growling. What happens next?
Problematically, because he'd turned himself into a dog, Anton was finding it more difficult to recall what he was meant to be doing. I feared something like this might happen, and it had an impact on events, especially towards the end of my first day in Vienna. What was left of Anton was far too amorphous to imagine things coherently. As I've tried to explain, he was more like a memory of himself, running about as a dog now. But I'm afraid to say, Otto in Flames wasn't abandoned. The book may only have been physically written up to chapter 8, but Anton's new condition didn't prevent what he'd set out already from being morphed and structured in the unseen. In the reality we love, things take forever to happen. It took the universe billions of years to get to the 18th of February 2019 so that I could be tormented and victimized on my first day back in Vienna. I always knew I'd be attacked by a dog there. To have been contemplated by the dog that Anton was, trying to imagine a story about me, so that my whole existence could unfold accordingly, was not only more dreadful, it was the matter of an instant. I had to disregard how fluid the unseen was, how everything at once could resolve into each moment of my life through whatever exploit Anton happened to be trapped in. That is how I dealt with it, by ignoring it. For those who want to know what became of me right away, the part where I meet my aggressor in a courtyard is set out in chapter 11. The point I need to make here is that, whatever happens next, it is never spoiled by the fact that it's already happened. If you accept that every version of Otto in Flames had already existed for all of time, you'll agree wholeheartedly with this next proposition. It might have required the natural evolution of intelligent life, followed by the mimetic evolution of languages, before Anton could begin writing anything during his short time on Earth. But once he'd died and gone to hell, there really was no need to be so pedantic about the ending. All he had to do was think of it, and Otto in Flames could have had any ending. But no, he had to turn himself into a dog, and not just any dog. Confounded by a clutch of myths and legends, Anton's dog remained stubbornly intent on finding out about the rest of his book from his future reader. And all because a muse had told him that if he put his mind to it, everything he imagined would come true. All of the magic with the priest in the Georgian consulate, all of the excitement with Heraclitus in the cave, his perilous ride through the Caucasus, his eerie flight to the edge of the universe, not to mention his encounter in 1882 with the Reverend Dr. Henry Lansdell. All of it would end up being realized and perfected in Anton's befuddlement. He died of the stress it was causing him, and still he wanted to know what happens next. The other fantastical thing about Otto and Flames, of course, is that he'd gone on to imagine me. He'd imagined me before, in other books. He'd worked out the minutiae of my life. But he hadn't done it hand in hand with a miraculous gift to make it actually happen. I was supposed to have been born in September 1979. But that was just a fiction. The reality is, I came to life one night in February 2019. To be precise, it was during the early hours of the 17th of February that year, when I woke up from a nightmare in England and nearly missed my ride to the airport. Like everything else devised in Anton's brain, I ended up in a cave. It was the fulcrum for all his ideas. Because he'd taken the trouble to make it up, everything that went on in that blighted place became as real as I am. Be grateful for rule-bound realities, I say, even if they do hem you in. You might think of me as the narrative that got lost, but I'm afraid to say I'm more than that. I'm alive in the thick of a story I didn't invent. Oksana seizing an opportunity to develop her art, had begun to depict the disarray her husband was in. The forces channeling her desire to do this were a pattern of impressions in a darkness she was mistress of. I have nothing but sympathy for the way she sensed her husband. 
We might say he became the materials her painting was made of. He would never see himself as he really was. Had he, he would have smeared it and smudged it until it didn't make sense anymore. As it is, I'm the only one left with the headache of trying to explain it. Anton's retelling of events, overlapping as it did with his bastard conception of myth, wasn't just plucked out of nowhere. He genuinely believed that Urania was telling him what to write. But this leads, as ever, to the thorny question, who was telling Urania what to tell him? That question reveals a litany of questions. It's an infinite regression of similar histories about who told who what to think next. What lies at the root of it, no one has been able to say. In the rumble of Anton's brain, the intuition that his life was fading was all that mattered. This was an ache I imagine everyone feels and tries to dismiss. Anton felt it. Oksana felt it. I feel it. Let's say Urania did present him with an all-powerful gift. Events took an interesting turn when Anton's desire to know what happened in the rest of his book proved so irresistible that he found himself ferreting in a cave for it. He couldn't stop himself doing this. No more than the paint drying on Oksana's canvas could have done anything differently. Even after he was released from time, forever, in the shape of a clever mongrel, Anton couldn't resist his memories about me on a quest to recover what I'd lost. You will have gathered that I didn't want to be in his book. As a living person, I felt I had the right to be more than something somebody made up in a cafe. It was when I came face to face with Anton's version of Prometheus, both of us bellowing like trussed-up opera singers, that I began to despair of finding a way back to a more sober reality. I should mention, Prometheus was Father Promontano. His name had been weirdly Hispanicized, and I suppose he was in Anton's book to give it those undertones of misery and sacrifice he was so attuned to. That Promontano happened to be a priest was no mystery either. Since he was a child, Anton had been fascinated by priests. But for his beliefs, he might have joined the priesthood. He often saw himself wearing a dog collar. As to the question of his beliefs, I can confirm that Anton was no atheist. Although he was in a position to presume anything he liked, he tended to presume there was a power more profound than him, hidden behind the fact of existence. Yet during his lifetime, he hadn't come across any god he would like to have been reunited with. The demiurges courted by humans always seemed more like Zeus. Such gods thought nothing of meeting out savage punishments. To Anton's mind, the crucifixion of Jesus had been nothing less than a brutal reminder of life's extremes. He would have been terrified of facing a god who could have let such a thing happen to his son. As arbitrary as they were, these were the kinds of themes feeding themselves into Otto and Flames. Until I met the priest, personally, I was ignorant of them. Which is to say, I forced myself to ignore them. Only after I flew into the cave did Anton's weird confection become halfway intelligible. Over the years I'd convinced myself that everything looks the way it appears. This was a materialistic assumption about reality that gave me huge comfort. It allowed me to encounter reality on terms I was used to. What happened in Chapter 7 of Anton's book, when Promontano revealed himself to be an ancient titan and laid Otto in flames and all that cash on the table, made me realize for the first time that there were limitations to the gift Anton had. Understanding that was a breakthrough. It meant I could begin to distinguish my own experiences from the writer's eruption of ideas and hopefully find ways of withstanding them. In terms of the background to his ideas about Promentano, it may be helpful to recall what happened to the real Prometheus. He was one of twelve titans and used to be Zeus's favorite. He made mortals out of mud. Our ancestors were mulched by his hands. He named us after the word humus, which means earth. 
Because Prometheus was so clever, he believed that what he'd made was clever too, which is why he trusted us with fire. With fire, we could see in the dark and even behave as if we were gods. Zeus was outraged that a titan of all beings should have been so foolish. He punished Prometheus by chaining him to a rock at the summit of the highest mountain in the Caucasus and made an eagle pluck out his liver there. But even this wasn't enough to compensate the indiscretion of letting humans play with fire. To worsen the punishment, Zeus saw to it that his favorite titan's liver would grow back every night so the eagle could go on eating it every day. It took the mighty Heracles, or Hercules as the Romans knew him, to unchain Prometheus, but only after a very long time. Zeus remained sullen, if not scathing. He decreed that the titan should be banished to the mountains forever, which is why, to this day, Vinctus Promontano lives in a cave in the unseen, dressed as a priest in need of urgent medical attention. Damning proof, if proof is needed, that in the unseen everything that is imaginable has already happened. For much of his life, Anton too thought he was suffering for humanity rather than from it. Only after he died did the truth come out. For reasons I've discussed, his fantasy of Prometheus was given the form of a priest with Mayan ancestry. It was in the Yucatan that the writer had experienced the one silence with Oksana that had said everything anyone needed to say. But if Anton was aware of the inceptions for his ideas, it didn't mean he always understood where they were taking him. Gods never die. They languish forever. Vinctus Promontano was forced to do his languishing in a cave. Mortals would drop by from time to time, like the mapmaker Rigobert Bonn. Anton came along as a dog. I made a brief appearance in an opera. The only other permanent dweller, as far as I could tell, was Anton's future reader, the philosopher Heraclitus. It seemed he and Promontano had been languishing together for two and a half thousand years. Heraclitus came from Ephesus, now Selchuk in western Turkey. When he was alive, he wrote a book called On Nature. In it, fire was revered above all the other elements. Before Heraclitus escaped to the mountains, he offered his book to the gods. On Nature is still being talked about to this day, but there are only fragments of the book left, and even these are memories. They are the citations of others who were able to read it before the library in Alexandria was burned to the ground. What is remembered of the book always reads like a riddle. Heraclitus seems to have written sentences like this. The universe, which is the same for all, has not been made by any god or man, but has always been an ever-living fire, igniting itself by measures and going out by measures. The riddle of the writing leaves me with a sense that what can't be known about the book will always be more profound than what is known. Banished from Ephesus for complaining about the humans there, Heraclitus walked north for the rest of his life until he found the cave Promontano was hiding from Zeus in. The two of them went on to have all the long conversations it is possible to have. They often argued about the problem of giving humans fire. The position Heraclitus took was that while it had been a noble gesture, no good would come of it. By the beginning of the 21st century, even Promontano found himself lamenting humanity, which had taken arrogance and burning things to a whole new level. Heraclitus had kept in touch with humanity by reading lots of books. They were delivered to him by the muses but he was a vain philosopher and only liked to read those books that mentioned him by name. Among the thousands to reference him over the last twenty or so centuries, Otto in Flames was just one that happened to crop up. Urania had brought it to the cave for him. It was when he dropped this into a conversation that Promentano's interest was piqued. Vinctus Promentano was no ordinary god. Like the humans he'd brought into being, he was always on the cusp of a grisly death. 
He was a god who could be consumed and then reborn. Even as he survived, he would perish daily and come back to life. It was this perpetual and intimate experience of hosting death that made it possible for Promontano to know what love is. As a rule, immortals have no need of love. They have no need of anything. Because they live forever, they have everything they could possibly want. But Promontano thought of little else, and he loved Urania most of all. Ever since he was a titan, reposing on Olympus, he'd admired this dark muse from a distance. But they'd never been able to speak. Hoping that either Anton or I might be able to tell him where his love had got to, Promontano had deigned to speak with us. First with Anton in the Georgian consulate, then with me at the Spitzenhof Café. This even though Urania was a daughter of Zeus. The priest would have known that his reduced circumstances at the hands of her father would forever prevent their eternal union. Yet isn't that precisely the nature of love? to want what is impossible to have. What happens next? In the linguistic twilight of Anton's mind, everything was as he imagined it. But it was uniquely that. It couldn't have been something that couldn't be imagined. What happened was the range of combinations that had to occur out of what Anton Matins already knew. Don't mistake me. I may disparage him. I was enraged by him. Yet, much as I'd like to have punished him for it, I couldn't very well blame the writer for what he knew. On the night before he died, he made a prescient entry in his journal. It was his last conventional piece of writing before he became a dog. The modern age has been unable to equip us with anything we don't already know. Miraculous communications, medical miracles, the megapolis, space age travel, non-stop entertainment, and whatever else may be achieved by the wonders of science. All of this has only ever provided us with a more versatile language to make what has already been imagined even more realizable. I'd survived my first full day in Vienna. I felt terribly shaken by my meeting with Promontano, but towards the end of that day, my confidence returned. As I made my way to the lobby, believing I would see Marie again, all I knew was that my penchant for premonitions was about to come to an end. From midnight, I would be able to live in hope again. What with the shock of not seeing Marie, but meeting my son for the first time, I'd forgotten all about the vicious dog I'd always known I would have to contend with. But enough of my poetry. Let us hear about what happened to Anton after he delivered a length of old twine to the lost cartographer Rigobert Bonn, because that is what happened next. You may recall that the 18th century Frenchman had been expecting Anton to return his left shoe his technique of using the dog's bark to map the nine passages leading away from the cavity he was in had paid dividends. Rigobert's accurate depiction of the warren was all but complete. There were just two passages left to be explored and faithfully committed to the map. Logically, one of them should lead to the Yucatan coast, where Rigobert's ship had gone down. When he saw that Anton had brought him some old string, the bone was truly incensed. Imbecile, he shrieked. What have you done with my shoe? Sweat glistened over his face as he bent down to pull the string from Anton's mouth. He asked other impenetrable questions Anton was in no position to answer. How do you expect me to walk out of this hell? He shouted. With one shitty shoe arm. He flicked the twine this way and that, trying to trick Anton into letting go of it. Anton was growling. 
No sane dog would wish to relinquish such a hard-earned find so easily. Even if it was only a piece of string, he clamped his jaw hard around the material in his mouth, which had a pleasantly bitter aftertaste. As your commanding officer, the bone blared, I order you to release the string. The Frenchman was beginning to smell like too much pepper on venison with a red wine sauce. He yanked at the string until Anton's gums hurt. Soon the dog grew weary of this game. He unclenched his jaw and flopped sideways to the ground. He couldn't help thinking there was still that interesting other shoe to play for. It was instinctive for the bone to put the string to his nose. This was the first thing he did. His sense of smell wasn't as acute as Anton's, but he instantly caught a whiff of roses. The memories that flowed from that odor were detailed and nuanced, so that a forgotten door to Rigobert's mind suddenly opened. He felt himself float into the private chambers of a certain aristocrat he'd once been intimately acquainted with. With all his heart, he wished he could go back into the arms of his lover. He could still hear their giggles now. Anton took little or no interest in the Bones' reminiscences. He watched sullenly as the Frenchman inhaled deep sniffs of the twine. He found it unremarkable that the bone should wish to smother his own forearm in kisses while humming the tune to a ballroom minuet from days of yore. Only when he noticed the emergence of a lemon-drizzled grin from the Frenchman's forearm did Anton begin to wag his tail. The bone's eyes were sparkling. Through the catalyst of a simple odor, Rigobert Bon had become his old self. When he spoke, his diction was sugared in ways more suited to the salons of mannered society than to being lost deep inside a cave. Ah, Cerberus, the Frenchman said. If only you could feel the loss I feel. Oh, master, you might ask, what is this loss you speak of? Rigobert continued to address himself as if he were an actor on the stage. In order to answer himself, he swiveled on the spot. Anton remained slouched on the floor, but kept glancing at the performance. Occasionally wagging his tail, he rotated his orbs to follow the Frenchman's changing whereabouts. Whenever the bones stopped to see what impression he was making, Anton raised his head and tilted it sideways. The dog was only interested in one thing, hoping that the Frenchman's gushing diction heralded another game of fetch-the-thrown-away shoe, he let his tongue dangle this way and that. You are but a mangy dog, the Frenchman was saying. Your brain would implode should you take just one draft of the torment I must forever endure. Anton kept his tongue loose and ready. Shall I give you a hint? Having tilted his head one way, Anton tilted it the other. The feeling I must forever endure, the bone said, as if posing a conundrum for a parlor game, does not proceed logically. For the further one is from it, the stronger it becomes. There. Have you guessed? Anton produced a subtle but definite woof. The part of him that was dog had no idea what the Frenchman was talking about, but the part of him that was obscure dead writer knew all about the longing that had beleaguered humans through the ages. Woof, as you say, the bone exclaimed. Woof, my dear companion from the underworld. There were tears in his eyes. He looked as if he might sweep Anton from the ground and hug him. I couldn't have put it better, he said. In polite society, we use such a clunky motto. We say, Dieu, que la mort est triste. Anton could no longer contain himself. He was a dog bursting with a vision. In his brain, the bone saying woof could only mean one thing, that the other shoe was about to be hurled into another passage. He was on all fours. His barking became insistent. So much so, it snapped the Frenchman out of his reverie. 
It was with some horror that Rigobert stared at the rough walls, the water cascading down them, the stalagmites where the great and the good should have been congregating, and the three candles burning low on his table. It was, alas, an underground cavern still, and the noise of the dog was thunderous. The bone made a gesture with his hands, pushing them in a downward direction, shaking his head like a conductor, imploring the orchestra to soften its tone. But Anton was beside himself. Forced to guess which way the shoe might fly, he kept looking back at the bone, trying to read the man's body language. Rigobert was swigging from his flagon again, which put Anton in a frenzy. Just throw it, he barked. Without waiting to see which way the other shoe would go, he set off towards a passage at random. And still the shoe didn't rush overhead. So the dog trotted back, barking and jumping vertically. Yes, 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 the bone was saying. Yes, 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 yes. It's easy for you. You are just a dog. I'm the one who has to choose. He put his forefinger to his lips as if he could coax his lips into telling him what to do. Only after flicking the tips of his lips a few times did the bone seem ready to proceed. Of the two remaining passages, he selected the one on the right. He walked part of the distance, with Anton dashing around him in circles, still bouncing and barking. Hoisting his remaining shoe overhead, the Frenchman summoned all his strength and cried out, At last, Cerberus! Your time has come. With that, he pitched the shoe into the dark as far as it would go. <laughs> <laughs>